Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Here at GCA, we observe the Lord's Communion once a year. And the reasons for that will become more obvious as we take a little time to teach through communion this morning. The Lord's Supper is one of only two places in the New Testament where you see God actively punish people with death for doing it so wrongly. The other place is in lying to the Holy Spirit about your giving. And it seems like through the years, both of those things have become fairly common. People participate in the Lord's Supper in a haphazard way which Paul is going to tell us this morning, that if you do this unworthily, which is an adverb, it modifies the action, not the actor. If you do this action in an unworthy manner, Paul says, some are sick and some have even died as a result. Now, if you take those words seriously at all, then you really ought to be careful about how you observe the Lord's Supper. So that is one of the reasons that we devote a full morning to the Lord's Supper. And it's why when we do it, we take the time to teach about it first so that people understand what they're doing and why they are doing it, so that you do not, to use Paul's words, drink condemnation to yourself. Well, you don't want to be drinking the guilt that leads to condemnation. You want to be concentrating fully and wholly and participating in a way that is God-glorifying. And I am convinced the only way for you to do that is to know what the communion is, what it means, and why we do it, and why we do it once a year. Now, that choice of doing it once a year was not haphazard. Typically, here at GCA, we observe the communion on what is commonly known as Resurrection Sunday, unless, of course, Resurrection Sunday and the Passover get so confused between the lunar and solar calendar that Passover comes after Resurrection Sunday, which happens occasionally, and then we adjust accordingly because there is no way to take the communion away from its historic roots in Passover. And the more you understand about what Passover is, why the Israelites observed Passover, and how often they observed the Passover, the more you know about that, the more clear it becomes that the New Testament really only teaches 
a once a year Lord's Supper service. So we're going to start this morning in Exodus 12. So grab your Bible or grab your iPad or grab your phone and turn to Exodus 12. And we're going to read a little bit about the establishment of the Passover. We're going to read the first 27 verses, but this will give you some sense of how and why God established the Passover to begin with. You may recall that when God delivered Israel out of the land of Egypt, one of the things that he instructed Moses to then instruct the Israelites was that on a particular night, they were all to gather in their house They were to kill a lamb for a house, and they were to collect the blood from that lamb, and then with hyssop, which would work as a brush, they would then paint some of that blood on the lentil and the doorpost of the house. And that night, the death angel passed through Egypt, killing all the firstborn, but wherever the blood was on the door, the death angel would pass over that house. And that is exactly where the word Passover comes from. Because God, that very night, after killing all the firstborn of Egypt, that night he delivered Israel. And so when they observed the Passover, that very first Passover, they were to sit in their homes with their families, fully dressed, sandals on their feet, staff in hand, ready to go, ready to travel, because that night God was delivering them. Now as we read in Exodus 12, I'm going to emphasize one particular word here, and the word is memorial. Because God instructed Israel that every year on the 14th of Nisan, the beginning of their year, They were to observe the Passover for the reason of remembering how God had delivered them out of Egypt. Year by year by year, they were supposed to observe it in order to remember. And so Moses refers to it as a memorial because memorials are designed to remember. That's why even here in America, we have a memorial day, a day of remembrance. So from the very beginning, the Passover was designed to be a way to make Israel remember what God had done for them. The point of stressing the memorial aspect of it is that that memorial aspect did not change when Christ established the Lord's Supper. All he did was changed the focus, but it was still a memorial. They were always, each year, year by year, they were remembering the deliverance out of Egypt. 1,400 years, every year, once a year, on the 14th day of Nisan, they would remember that God had delivered them out of Egypt. That memorial went on for 1,400 years. Then Jesus sits down with his apostles, and he says, Now when you eat this bread... Now when you drink this cup, remember me. He changed the focus. He didn't change 
the remembering part of it. He didn't change the date of it. He didn't change the observance part of it. What he did was he changed the focus. It's always been a memorial. It's always been about remembering something. But we here at GCA, we are not actively remembering our deliverance out of Egypt. Instead, we're remembering what Christ did for us. So it has always been a memorial. The reason that is important theologically is that various people have argued through the years about what the significance is of the bread and the wine. And they will say that the bread and wine has either the real presence of Christ's body and blood within them, or some will say it is actually the very body and blood of Christ after the priest says the incantation in Latin, then the body and blood inhabit the actual bread and wine. So they say that it is a salvific work that you have to do as you take the body and blood of Christ and you ingest that, then you are keeping yourself saved. None of that is found anywhere in the Bible. What you find from the very beginning, from the very establishment of Passover, is it's a memorial. And when Christ said, this is my body and this is my blood, his flesh was still on his bones and his blood was still coursing through his veins. And there is no indication that the bread or the wine became his body or his blood. So what we are doing here this morning is using bread and wine because he did. We're using them as a place of remembrance. And we'll talk about the significance of that just before we do it. But recognize that there is no magic going on here in the front of the room. The bread remains unleavened bread. The wine remains wine. But the bread and the wine are a remembrance of what we are told to remember. Does that all make sense? Yes. Okay, so now Exodus 12, you've been sitting there with your Bibles open. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. In the Hebrew, that's Abib. That's the month of Nisan. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one of them to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished lamb, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house in which they eat it. 
and they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. For the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial for you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. In other words, you never stop doing it. Just like we never stop doing it. As I said, because God established it as a permanent ordinance, we don't change the doing, you just change the focus. Because Christ, the superior to Moses, took all the ordinances that Moses had prescribed and then changed the focus from deliverance to Egypt to deliverance from sin. When you do this, he said, remember me. Now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. That is very significant. Hold on to that. God has just established that on a particular period of the first month of every year, They were to get all the leaven out of their houses and out of their camps. And at that particular time of year, they would eat unleavened bread. At no other time of the year did God require the eating of unleavened bread. Hold that in your memory. It's going to become important later. Later when I say this is the unleavened bread, I want your minds to hearken back to this ordinance from Moses. That there was a particular time, a particular moment in which they were required to eat that particular bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly. And another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on those holy days except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. 
For on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt, and therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourself lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of that blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the doorpost. And none of you shall go outside of his door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses and smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance, that means as a rule, as a command. You shall observe this particular memorial as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And it will come about when you enter the land, which the Lord will give you as he has promised that you shall observe this right. It will come about when your children will say to you, what does this right or this ritual mean to you? Then you will say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and they worshiped And the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That night, God delivered them out of Egypt, and continually, for the next 1,400 years, they continued to observe the Passover. Turn to the book of Luke. Luke 22 So then it is not surprising... Given that ordinance and the permanence of that ordinance, given that God has commanded that this memorial would be done year after year, once a year continually, it's not surprising then that during Jesus' ministry, we read that he kept the Passover. In fact, it is by counting the number of Passovers in Jesus' ministry that we know that he had a three and a half year ministry. He observed because he was a thoroughgoing Jew, as were his apostles. He then observed the Passover. And it was during that very Passover that he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he did not change, importantly, Anything about the continual nature of the observance. Keep doing it, but now we're going to see him change the focus. 
and say, now when you do it, remember me. A moment ago, Moses told Israel, you're going to do this every year because you're going to remember that God delivered you out of Egypt. Jesus, the superior to Moses, says, now remember me. Luke 22, we're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to read all the way to verse 23. Not surprisingly, Luke 22, 1 takes the time to point out the date stamp. Luke gives us the exact time that these events were going to happen when he says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Now we know exactly what time of year this was all occurring. We know the Passover was coming. And we now know the ordinances of the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And he consented, and he began seeking an opportunity to betray him to them apart from the multitude. And then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. What day is it? Passover. It's the Passover day is the day that these things are taking place. Now, as we refer to days by Jewish lunar reckoning, we're not talking about days starting the way we reckon days. We say that a day begins at midnight. That's when our clock turns and we start counting the hours again. But not so by lunar reckoning. On the Jewish calendar, a day starts at evening. And so once the sun has gone down adequately, that there's an equal amount of sunlight and moonlight, equal light and darkness, at that point, that evening, which is where we get the word evening. When you say good evening to someone, you're saying this is the moment when there is an even amount of light and dark. And so in the evening, a new day begins. And so on the evening that Jesus got together with his apostles, that was the beginning of the Passover day. That was the beginning of the 14th of Nisan. Which is why he was able to keep the Passover with his apostles and then through that night be betrayed, go through the various kangaroo courts and trials that he went through, be sent back and forth between the Romans and Herod, and then the next day he was on the cross and at the very time that the high priests were in the temple sacrificing Passover lambs, the actual Lamb of God was dying on a cross outside Jerusalem on Golgotha's hill. There were no mistakes here. God made sure that this was all accomplished according to the plan that he had already established in the Passover ritual 1,400 years ago. 
And so it was the Passover, verse 7 says. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, when they had to eat unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters, and you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they departed, and they found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Why did they find everything just exactly the way he told them it was going to be? It's because he was the very sovereign Lord of glory who had absolute control over these events that were so significant that the salvation of anyone in the world that God had deigned to save was dependent on this particular night and the accomplishment of the death of Christ and the resurrection again to new life and all the promises that are wrapped up in it. In other words, nothing was left to chance. God was in control of every single element of it. Verse 14, and when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. At that moment, Jesus got all eschatological on them. Not only is this a remembrance looking backwards, not only is it a memorial of what Christ has already accomplished, but it also has this very forward-looking aspect to it. And the forward-looking aspect is the establishment of the kingdom. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time at this moment to go into the whole history, background, and theology of the kingdom. But the only kingdom that his apostles would have been aware of at that moment was the kingdom promised Israel that is established in the Old Testament. There has been no other development of any other kingdom theology that they would have been familiar with. All they would have known was that Jesus said that when he sat on his glorious throne that they were going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That seems like a very literal kingdom. And at this point, at this moment, at this exact moment in time, they are not sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is a forward-thinking aspect to the promise of the kingdom to come, so much so that at the beginning of the book of Acts, after he has spoken to them for 40 days, and Luke tells us what they talked about for 40 days, they talked about the kingdom for 40 days. After that 40 days of teaching from Jesus, they then ask him, well, then are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? At this time? I mean, after all, 
He is their established king. He is the descendant of David. At his triumphal entry, people have been shouting that, Hosanna to the king, Hosanna to the son of David. They recognize him as the leader that Israel has been waiting for. And then rather than establish the kingdom that had been anticipated all the way through the Old Testament, instead of doing that, he was given over to the Romans and he's crucified and he's dead. And that seems to them like the end of their messianic hopes for that guy. But three days later, he's up again. He's alive again. And that makes him the best king who ever lived. Because he's a king that can feed thousands with a couple loaves and a couple fishes. He's a king who can take money out of fish's mouths. And he's a king you can't kill. I mean, this is the best king ever. Now, I say all of that to say that's the only kingdom that can possibly be in their minds. That's why they've asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now are you going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem? Now are the Gentile nations going to flow to Jerusalem? Are you going to do all that now? They asked him a time question. He gave them a time answer. He said, it's not for you to know the times, the seasons that God has placed in his own hand. So in other words, they said, now he said, it's not for you to know. Not yet. So the only kingdom they could have possibly perceived of was the Old Testament kingdom that was promised by all the prophets to Israel. And he just said that he was not going to participate in the elements of the Lord's Supper again until he ate it new with them in the kingdom. So there's this very forward thinking eschatological aspect that's connected to this thing we're doing this morning. As we participate in the communion this morning, we are joining 3,000 years, 1,400, 2,000, 3,400 years of believing people, faithful people, looking forward to the promises of God. We're joining 2,000 years of Christians who looked back and remembered what Christ did. But we're also joining 2,000 years of Christians in looking forward to all the promises that God has made to us of all the things he is going to accomplish. And that includes the absolute sovereign kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. So we're not only remembering his death this morning, but we're remembering Everything that's coming. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this. And share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Now that phrase, this is my body, is a simile. This is the same Jesus who said things like, I am the door. And nobody believes that he actually meant that he was a wooden door with hinges. And we all understand that what he was saying when he said, I'm the door, is that he was saying, I'm the one you have to pass through. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man gets to the Father but through me, but by me. So he speaks in similes. And here he says, this bread is my body. He wasn't saying, this bread has now magically become my body. He said, this bread represents my body. It is an emblem by which you can memorialize my body. And so do this remembering me. Now the memorial has changed. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, even more interesting. We don't have time to go into all the details of the promise of the new covenant, but Jeremiah 31 promises that there's going to be a new covenant made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that was made when I took them by the hand and I took them out of Egypt. Instead, there is a new covenant because that covenant, God says, they broke. So because that's a broken covenant, it's not going to be able to save anybody. So then in order for God to save people, there has to be the establishment of a new covenant. Qualitatively new. Qualitatively different. Superior, that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, that it's based on better promises because it's based on a better blood, because we have a better high priest. And so the blood of Christ is superior than the blood of goats and bulls and animals and sacrificial lambs on doorposts and lentils. Instead, the blood of Christ is able to fully and sufficiently save people because it is established on a new agreement, a new covenant that God has made between himself and the people that he has ever loved. This cup, he says, is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And then at this very moment, at this very crucial moment, as Jesus has just explained that his death is going to be the surety of their salvation and the establishment of the new covenant. If you continue reading there in Luke 22, you'll find that what the apostles were talking about was who was going to be greatest among them. <laughs> they were still arguing about which one of them was going to end up with preeminence. Now, the reason that I bring that up is because Jesus laid down his life for even sinners like them, the ones who were in the very room with him, being taught by him, 
as he was establishing the new covenant at this absolutely essential moment in time. Nevertheless, they were still wrapped up in their egos and their pride and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They still didn't get it. They still didn't get that he was going to be dead less than 24 hours from now. I'm glad that Jesus came to save sinners. I'm glad that the Bible describes even the apostles not getting it so that every one of us can have confidence when we come to this bread and wine. Now, I told you to remember something a little while ago. When Jesus sat down and broke bread with his apostles, what kind of bread would that have been? had to be unleavened bread. That was a particular kind of bread. Turn over to 1 Corinthians for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to start reading at verse 23. These are Paul's instructions to the church at Corinth about the proper way to participate in the Lord's Supper. Because as you'll see as you read through it, They were apparently doing it really wrong. And he's going to explain to them how it is that they were getting it so wrong. The ones who had plenty of food, who had money, would come and have a whole feast, a whole meal. While there were people hungry among them. And they weren't caring for each other. They weren't waiting for each other. And so that was the manner in which they were doing it. And Paul had to correct the manner in which they were doing it. But along the way, Paul used very specific language. So let me see if I can stress these specific language. Starting at verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord... That which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. We just read that. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's the memorial aspect of it. Paul recognized the memorial aspect of it. Remember, Paul also is a thoroughgoing Jew, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, was a Pharisee, at one time bragged that he was blameless before the law. He is steeped in Old Covenant, Old Testament theology. He understands it, which is why he was the perfect choice for unpacking all of those things that were in the Old Testament that were pointing to Christ so that he could then say, look, this is all pointing to Christ. God's been telling the same story for all of history. And the reason that he had you doing this thing for 1400 years is because it was a memorial that all pointed toward Christ, the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the very lamb of God. This is my body, which is for you. So do this and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you keep doing this until he comes back. You keep doing this until he's ready to establish the kingdom. You keep doing this until he comes for his church. You keep doing this, but look at the details because Paul used a demonstrative pronoun, the word this. He said, as often as you eat this bread, it's the Passover. What bread would that be? Unleavened bread. How often, because the word often is in here twice, how often did they eat unleavened bread? Once a year. It was established as a once a year memorial in the Bible. That's what it's always been. It doesn't say anywhere do this once a week, do this once a month, do this bi-monthly, do this twice a year. Various different church traditions have decided among themselves that they were going to participate in the communion service once a week or once a month or whatever else because they claim that the Bible doesn't say how often to do it. I argue that the Bible says exactly how often to do it. The Bible already establishes that it's done as often as you're eating this bread, as often as you're drinking this cup. And how often is that? Once a year, unleavened bread, Passover. That would have been plain and obvious to the first century church, especially the first century church that was established among Jews. Christianity grew from Jerusalem. So there was no need for Paul to spell out, do this once a year. The details all said, do this once a year. And since it is a memorial, a time of remembrance, you do it once a year. Now, I think, and you can disagree with me if you want, but I think that if you do this memorial with overmuch frequency, then it becomes like, an add-on. It becomes something additional that you're doing at the end of the service and people aren't really stopping to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. It just becomes rote. It becomes habit. It becomes something that people just get used to. Now in a moment, Paul is going to say that you can eat and drink damnation to yourself if you do it in an unworthy manner. And so it is important that we think about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and to do it as a memorial, which is why we do it according to the biblical timeline, which is once a year. Now, we also attempt to do it as close to Passover each year as we can, except that this year, coronavirus. (laughs) And so this year, We were not able to meet together on the Sunday that was closest to the Passover. But one of the great things about Passover as a memorial feast is that unlike the other feasts in the Old Testament, the Passover actually has room for contingencies. 
The Passover actually says, if you're far away, if the trip is too far for you, if something happens or if you're sick, if you can't make it to Jerusalem for the Passover, the Passover was still so important to the life of the Jews that if you missed it on the 14th of Nisan, you could do it a month later. Well, I like that. Because that means that God understands contingencies. And by the way, because I am convinced that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that occurs in his universe, he knew the coronavirus was coming. But still, the memorial goes off. We're still going to do it. We might be late, but we're going to do it. So here's what Paul says. As often as you eat this bread, how often do you eat this bread? Once a year. year. Is that obvious now? I mean, to me, I read through that and I just think that is so plain in the text. Anyway, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. You don't want to be held guilty by God for the very blood of his beloved son. How do you avoid being held guilty? You do this in a worthy manner. Now the King James there says that we're to examine ourselves. I was told that all the time. Examine ourselves to determine whether we were worthy. We were supposed to look inside ourselves to decide whether or not we were worthy To participate in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to save you the trouble. You're not. You're not worthy. That's the whole point. That's the point of God's goodness and grace. And the blood of Christ. As God gave his son to save sinners. So don't begin by thinking. I got to be good enough. And oh no. I sinned. Just yesterday, some particular thing I can think of. And so does that make me unworthy? What's the cutoff point? What about the last hour, two hours, three hours? What's the cutoff point? Well, you know what's going to happen if you're doing that? You're going to spend all your time thinking about you, concentrating on you, thinking about your flesh, your actions, and you're not going to be placing the focus where it belongs, which is on Christ and his finished sacrifice. This is a memorial to Christ. It's not a memorial to you. So get your mind off you, get your mind back on Christ and what he accomplished for you, which is why Paul would say not to do it unworthily. And then the NASB took the time to extrapolate and use four words in order to translate that one Greek word. Whoever drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Okay, there's the examine himself part. Now, are you to examine yourself to decide if you're worthy? No, you're to examine yourself to make sure that you're doing this 
in a worthy manner and now he's going to explain to you what that worthy manner looks like actually he's going to explain how unworthy the Corinthians were let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself the King James says condemnation to himself if you do this in an unworthy manner you can eat and drink condemnation to yourself judgment from God to yourself if he does not judge the body rightly if you don't judge yourself your activity the way you're doing it and if you're not properly judging the whole body of Christ that is met together for this if you're not waiting on each other if you're not concerned about each other Paul will describe it for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number of you are dead God kills people who do this wrongly or haphazardly or thoughtlessly but if we judged ourselves correctly we would not be judged but when we are judged when we are corrected by God when we are adjured by God through weakness or sickness or death then we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world do you understand the theology of what Paul just said Paul said God is going to keep you from doing this so wrongly that you were actually sinning and rebelling against him and so he's going to put temporal judgments on you in order to avoid judging you eternally the way he's going to judge the rest of the world it is actually the mercy it is actually the grace of God who will keep you from rebelling against himself in the way that you do this so then my brethren when you come together to eat wait for one another if anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment and the remaining matters I shall arrange when I come Paul was basically saying you Corinthians are such a mess I'll deal with the rest when I get there <laughs> but for the moment I want to point out says Paul that when it comes to the Lord's Supper you're doing it so wrong that God is actively judging you for it so don't be like that okay so let's talk about the elements for a moment there is unleavened bread matzah bread in these cups in years past we have asked you to remain in your seat and the deacons have passed around a plate that has had a large piece of matzah bread on it and I have asked you each to break a piece off and to remember that the body of Christ was broken for you I like that visceral moment of understanding this is my body broken the bread has already been broken but broken into large enough chunks that when you have the bread before you you can still break it now instead of the deacons going around and giving you 
a plate that has the bread on it. We didn't want everybody touching the same plate and the same bread. So there are cups up here, and the deacons now are going to guide you as you come forward to take the bread and take the wine, but don't ingest it yet. We'll do that as a group. Over here, we do have wine. I know it is the tradition of some churches not to use wine. Christ used actual wine. The New Testament word for wine is clearly fermented wine. Oinos, new wine, would break a wineskin. That means that it actually went through the fermentation process, and that would expand the wineskin, and that's the only way that the wineskin would be broken. In other words, the New Testament understands what wine actually is. When Jesus was at the wedding at Cana in Galilee, he turned water into wine. Such good wine, by the way, for those who argue that he probably made non-alcoholic wine. It was such good wine that the master of the feast went to the groom and said, what are you doing? Most people bring out the good wine first, and then after everybody is well drunk, then they bring out the cheap wine. But you save the best for last. In other words, Jesus didn't just make wine. He made good wine. He made fermented wine. He made new wine. So we use wine. Wine is explained that way in the New Testament by Paul when he says to Timothy, for your many infirmities, because apparently Timothy had several stomach sicknesses, he said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, and you're off in infirmities. Now, that instruction of using wine medicinally would be pointless if he was talking about grape juice or if he was just talking about an unfermented wine. We use actual wine, which is what you're going to find in the cups here, but over on that side of the table, with a little handwritten sign, you will see there's grape juice in those cups. For any of the kids who want to participate with us, if you can see clearly to see Christ, if you understand and have a profession of Christ and want to have some of the grape juice, you're welcome to it. Also, the reason we have grape juice up here is that I am aware that there are people who have gone through a 12-step program, who have fought alcoholism all their life, and they've been told that that first drink would be a gateway to returning to their alcoholic ways and so those people would have a crisis of conscience when they came forward to the wine they would think gee will this little bit of wine reestablish the taste for alcohol and will it drive me back well if that's the crisis you're having anything like that then you're not thinking about Christ you're thinking about you you're thinking about your 12 steps you're thinking about all this stuff that isn't the point so save yourself the crisis of conscience and take some grape juice. That's why it's up there. But we have wine for people whose conscience is clear that Christ used wine and unleavened bread. And I think that's all the teaching we need for the moment. Tom and Micah are going to guide you. They apparently have figured out a floor plan I have not, but they have figured out a floor plan, so they will come and tell you what direction to move through here. Wait on each other, 
And once everybody has their bread and wine and are back in their seats, we are all going to participate together so that our minds collectively are where they're supposed to be, which is on the finished work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and the kingdom to come. Tom, if you would, if you would come pray to God, thanking him for the broken body of Christ. And Micah, if you would come and pray to God, thanking him for the spilled blood of Christ. We will have prayer before we uh, partake together. Tom, if you would. Dear Father in heaven. We'd like to thank you, Father, for this opportunity to once again celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we look at the unleavened bread as symbolic of the body of Christ broken for us. The unleavened nature showing the sinless nature of Christ. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to recognize what your Son has done for us by taking the unleavened bread And, Father, we thank you for such grace and mercy that you have given to us. Amen. Heavenly Father, 
As we take this cup, as we take this blood, we ask that we, it would be a memorial indeed for us to consider the blood that was shed by our Savior, the blood that dripped from his forehead, from his pierced hands and feet, and spilled for our sins, Lord. And we know that the, the great amount of blood from the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sin. But that blood, the blood of Christ, perfect and holy sacrifice, sufficient to instill a new covenant so that we can have access to God, knowing that our Savior, Jesus Christ, by His blood, offering up Himself willingly by that sacrifice, we're made whole, and by that sacrifice, we have the access to a holy God, and He has perfected us forever, Lord. It's difficult for us to understand that in light of our sin that lays before us, as David said, we know our sin, but yet you, through your blood, miraculously have washed all of that away. So we ask that we could indeed remember you in your great act of salvation today. Amen. I will ask you all to do one more thing. Before we partake together, I would just like to have everyone take a few moments, bow their heads, close their eyes, spend a few moments thinking about what Christ did and just really how gracious and good he's been to us. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're looking for. The coming of our dear Lord. Heavenly Father, Thank you once again for this opportunity in the midst of a wild and sometimes crazy and random looking world. Thank you that you have called out your saints, 
gathered them yet again so that we could think about you and read about you and observe this memorial recognizing that were it not for your finished work none of us could have any hope at all you are a kind and a gracious god and you have done things that were so far beyond our comprehension you sent your son and his son gave his life and that life established the covenant by which we are guaranteed eternal life forever and the kingdom to come so thank you you are faithful you are kind you are long suffering you are nothing but good and gracious holy and righteous and you are everything we need to face this lifetime and the end of our lives with hope and peace and confidence because we know your beloved son so thank you we love you amen We're going to sing one more song before Micah comes up with our benediction in closing.
Father, holy and righteous is your name. Thank you for bringing us here this morning, despite the difficult uh, surroundings that we're in in this world. Uh, you still called us here so that uh, we could be faithful in, in memorializing uh, the finished work that you performed for us, Lord, as we were able to share together uh, the bread and the wine. Um, that uh, you instilled as a memorial, Lord, so that uh, we are in, in, in wonder and in awe at the great sacrifice you have given to us. We weren't seeking you. We were not looking for you. Uh, we were determined and, and happy to be uh, in our own sin, but because of the great love that you have, you loved us first. Setting aside your own glory, coming to earth and, and tasting the very wrath of God for us. We read that it pleased God to crush his own son for us. We're in awe of you. What you have done is so worthy of praise and glory and honor throughout eternity, Lord. So we ask that you would humble our hearts, that you would cause us to praise you in a way that's that's worthy of, of such an act and we long, Lord, we long for the day when you'll return and we will be able to share this memorial with you in your kingdom, together with you, Lord. So we long for that day. We ask that you would hasten your return so that we could be united with the bridegroom, the bride with the bridegroom, Lord, together. Once again, we thank you for your great love. What a great demonstration of your love you've given to us. And we, we think and, and, and pray and consider that sacrifice, Lord. Help us to be always mindful, always willing to, to share the truth of that sacrifice to others so that we could be a witness in a dark world of Christ and Him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.